Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Arbitrary Analysis. Is this 10? I don't know. <laughs> All right, we'll go with 10. Um, I am your host, Ryan, and I'm joined tonight by Adam Carter. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty good. I was uh, I was a little scared that I wasn't going to be able to record tonight. I ran into some technical difficulties. And by technical difficulties, you mean people difficulties? No, no, I mean actual technical difficulties. Oh, so okay. I I picked up my computer and uh, I, I have a Mac, a MacBook Pro that I got in 2006. So this thing is really old. Um, and I picked it up and I turned it on, and everything seemed to be working fine. And then I have a trackpad with like a mouse button beneath it, and I tried to click the mouse button to open Skype, and it wouldn't click. And I couldn't figure out what the problem was. So I unhooked it, and I like picked up my computer, and then I noticed that the bottom of it was bulging out. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? So I took the battery off, and my battery had exploded. Oh, gross. Yeah, it wasn't like dripping anything, and I don't know when it happened, but at some point my battery had exploded, and it was pushing the case up and wouldn't let me click my mouse button. Um, That's gnarly. Yeah, so I looked into it, and apparently Apple refers to the the battery exploding as inevitable and calls it a feature <laughs> of the computer as opposed to a problem with the computer. What? So... <laughs> It's it's like a lithium polymer battery, and apparently it's just like with age or improper storage. I'm sure this is age because this thing's fucking ancient, but they explode. It's just a thing that they do. But the way they manufacture their batteries is that they rupture and the casing expands so that it like releases the pressure, so it doesn't actually explode and like burn your house down. I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> I guess, but like they refer to it as a feature, which seems oh like my God. bullshit <laughs> you know it's funny because when you first started that story saying that you had issues with your mouse um i was gonna say that's ironic because when i turned on my computer my mouse was actually having issues too did your computer uh, blow up it didn't it, my story is far less funny in the end <laughs> um, i just unplugged it a couple times and it started working well and the real pain of the ass pain in the ass of it is that i can't just throw the battery away because <clears throat> apparently they're like highly volatile yeah. So, <laughs> so I had to fill a bucket with salt water and submerge it in the bucket for like two days. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a, uh, a bucket full of ruptured battery downstairs that I need to dispose of at some point. It sounds like it's something that would happen in a horror movie. Like to kill the monster, you got to submerge it in, the, in a bucket and put like a something heavy over the top so it can't get out. Yeah, well, this thing was evidently going to burn my house down, so it's kind of scary. Um, anyway, enough with story time. Um, we're going to kick things off with a little bit of what have you been playing before we get to our main topic. Um, what have you been up to? Uh, a couple things. Um, I guess I'll start with The Witcher 2. Yeah feel like the other game can lead into our other topic discussion okay um, yeah i've been playing the witcher 2 uh and as everyone knows from our last show i've had a uh few issues with this series over the years um, yeah you've tried to start witcher 2 a couple of times haven't you i have um and i actually was going to begin uh with the witcher 1 
this time around just to play them in order. But I, I played that one for like 20 minutes. And after playing Dark Souls 2 not terribly long ago, The Witcher 1 just it, it felt so clunky. And it's pretty old at this point. I mean, that's like, what, 2005 or something? Yeah, around there. Um, so, And I, I, I had known from previous, previous experience that The Witcher 2 is, you know, it's much more modern. It's much closer to, like, a Dark Souls 2 kind of, uh, like, combat system and everything. Um, so I, I felt like that was the better choice. It could scratch that itch that I've been having for uh, more Dark Souls. So you passed over Witcher 1 in favor of 2? Yes. Okay. So, that's, so how are you finding it? Uh, I'm finding it a lot better this time around. You had given me a couple uh, tips on how to play the game. Yeah, I've got a couple people right now. Uh, I think Shane, who is also absent from this episode, is uh, currently playing it, as is a friend of mine. So I've been like the the witcher expert for the past three weeks helping people (laughs) get started um it's it's really hard to get into um yeah but like it's hard in a way that the game doesn't do itself any favors like it has a lot of systems that that it shows you and explains but it doesn't necessarily explain them well and it doesn't explain that like not all of them are necessary or vital to get through the game. Yeah. Whereas like a dark souls two is sort of like, it's a fairly elegant game design. Yeah. You know, and that the systems sort of expose themselves over time as opposed to being like immediately necessary. Yeah. Whereas Witcher two, they make it seem like all of these systems are necessary at the very beginning of the game. Mm hmm. Um, I'm glad you're, uh, I'm glad you're getting into it. How, uh, how far are you? Uh, I'm in act two, which is the furthest I've made it in the game. Previous to this, I'd never gotten, are, are they acts or chapters? I don't know. There's act, three of them. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever they are. Um, I'd never gotten all the way through the first part of the game. Um, so yeah, it's pretty cool. I don't know how far I am into the second act. The uh, second I've, act's pretty long. That's the longest of the game. I feel like I've done a ton of stuff in it. I feel like I've already done more in Act 2 than I did in Act 1. Yeah. So I feel like I've got to be getting close, but I don't know. Yeah, the thing that I like or find the most interesting about Witcher 2 is how, like, literal everything is in it. Like, when you're fighting an enemy, like, you don't just mash the attack button. You have to actually, like, watch the way that the main character moves and like time your sword slashes accordingly. And like you, you know, you have to collect the materials to mix a potion and then drink the potion to give you certain effects. Or like if you're fighting a certain monster, you have to find a book and like do research on it first. And if you actually sit down and read the book, it'll tell you like the weaknesses of certain monsters that can give you like an advantage in battle. Yeah. Like any other game you would find the book and it would just give you like plus 10% damage to, that monster type or something like that yeah exactly and the witcher doesn't do anything like that it literally yeah. just tells you like this is the best way to approach this type of monster yeah um and that sort of carries over into the narrative i think like you really have to do a lot of legwork in that game to understand the narrative and like go out of your way to sort of talk to different characters and 
sort of gather all the pieces together to understand it. Yeah, I think that was to my detriment that the past couple times I've played it, uh, I was not prepared to sit down and invest myself that heavily um, because this RPG, even compared to other RPGs, it asks a lot more from you as far as paying attention to people and places and events. Yeah, and even more so, like Dark Souls 2 is a very like mechanically demanding experience. But like Witcher 2 is demanding on every level. Like you have to actually like become a Witcher to understand that game. <laughs> As you have. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mixing but, potions with your battery acid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what it actually is. Um, so are you getting prepped for Witcher 3? Is that your main motivation? I, I guess. I mean, I think the bigger motivation is that I have, um, I have all the books, the Witcher books, um, that have been released in America so far, at least. Uh, but I've only read the first two. I've only read the um, the first short story collection and then the first full novel. The books are excellent. Like, I would say arguably better than the game. Yeah. Um, as much as I love the game, the plot gets pretty convoluted towards the end. But the books, I think, lend themselves to that kind of storytelling much better. Yeah. I mean, just as far as, like information books can do it in a much more like active way mm -hmm. where games if you go to your, your journal a lot of it feels like just huge information dumps yeah and it's even like the journal is not written like this is your objective it's like written in prose um, yeah there's a bard character in the game that like writes the journal and that's your how you understand what your mission objective is Right. Um, which is cool, but it also is somewhat opaque in terms of what you actually need to do. Yeah, it's almost like there's two ways to play the game. You could sit down and say, like, all right, I'm going to go and advance the plot. But you could also sit down and just be like, all right, I'm just going to sit here and read a bunch of journal entries. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about the combat system, but it has a pretty different approach to combat than most other RPGs. I mean, it's real time. You know, like hack and slash, I guess, is what you would call it. But um, what do you think about the combat system? The combat system is the funniest thing to me. And it's what I had the most trouble getting over um, in my previous plays. Um, because I, I will never forget you telling me that the role mechanic is everything. Yeah, that is the key to getting good at that game. And it's so funny because I remember you telling me you look just you you it looks so stupid because all you're doing is rolling. And I'm like, <laughs> it can't look that dumb. But playing the game and just rolling and rolling and rolling and then going in for a single attack and then rolling <laughs> and rolling, you look like you don't know how to play the game. Yeah. <laughs> but that's I don't know. It works. Yeah, there's like a parry ability in the game where you can block stuff, but the block is not helpful. The roll is what it's all about. No, and even in um, like I know in Demon Souls, when I very first played Demon Souls, I was very into the parry mechanics in that. Mm -hmm. um, but when it came to Dark Souls too, I never used the parry mechanic. Like you never blocked. No, I no like I blocked, but you can like the repost kind of thing. Yeah, you can like knock their sword out of the way, and then you do like a 
a super attack. Well, and like in Dark Souls, you do a lot of rolling too, but like it's such a much more slow-paced game. Yeah, I, The Witcher 2 also like the camera tracks behind your character when you're not locked on. Mm-hmm. So the camera's swinging all over the place. Yeah, it's uh, the rolling is, is key to that game, but unfortunately you do look pretty stupid while you're doing it. Yeah. Um, I read a thing about Witcher 3 where they're apparently removing the rolling and he'll just do like a spin, like a pirouette to dodge an attack. Yeah, and it, it makes sense if you watch the um, the gameplay footage that's been released for Witcher 3. You do not see him rolling. You you do see him only like spinning away from the enemy and it looks a lot cleaner. Yeah. It makes more sense. Like the roll is effective mechanically speaking, but like it definitely breaks the immersion when you're just like somersaulting over, you know, 30 feet of land. For sure. Um, all right. So uh, what else you got? Uh, the other major thing I've been playing, um, the other, well, not the other day at this point, a week or two ago, I played through Gone Home. Okay. Um, and that was that was an experience. Yeah, Gone Home's a little different. How, uh, give us a brief summary of that one. Like in, uh, as far as if, what if kind you of game it is. listen to Steam, it is a walking simulator. <laughs> I've, I've heard that <laughs> phrase used before. Uh, Which, <laughs> like, I don't care what game you're playing. If you call Gone Home a walking simulator, you're an asshole. <laughs> because like. Bioshock Infinite is a walking simulator. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I I, I found, and I know um, the team that made Gone Home has ties to Bioshock 2, mm-hmm. but there are very similar uh, things that you find yourself doing between Gone Home and Bioshock. And I don't know. I just think it's a little ridiculous of people to say, gone home like doesn't offer anything else other than walking yeah (laughs) well it's basically bioshock but they remove the combat and set it in a realistic setting yeah so all right so my rant is over whatever um (laughs) the game is uh, about the you play as this girl who is she's coming home from a trip around europe uh and it opens with like her leaving a message at home and like no one answered. And when she gets home, she finds a note uh, on the door from her younger sister saying something about like I've her younger sister has left and she's requesting that the older sister does not look for her or like try to figure out what happened. And as you make your way through the house, you realize no one is home. You can't find your mom. You can't find your dad. Your sister's gone. Um, but you find, you can find like, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Like you can find pieces of their lives laying around. It's like clues basically. Yeah. Cl- I didn't want to say clues. Cause that makes it sound like you're just, you're finding like, I don't you, know. You'll find like uh, like a note like written from your mom. Like it's all very, sort of banal stuff like it's just common everyday items that you might find in a house like a note left on the fridge or something saying that you know we've gone out to dinner we'll be back at 10 or something like that or you'll find a mixtape of your little sisters and you can put it in a cassette player and listen to it 
Um, <clears throat> or like you'll go into your dad's office and see, you know, what he's been working on. Yeah, you'll find notes from like uh, his boss. Like he's a writer and you might find a note saying like, this isn't good enough. You need to rewrite this. Uh, send me the next one within, you know, a month or whatever. Stuff like that. Um, but as you go through, you can kind of piece together what has happened in the house. Yeah, and sort of like even more than that, you sort of just piece together who your family members are as people. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's about. It's essentially character building in a game to like the most in-depth level. Yeah, it's like the mechanic is character building. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that the thing that was the most interesting is the way that it kind of plays with tropes of video games like i don't know if you remember this part but where you walk into the bathroom and you see like red liquid everywhere yeah and the whole game has this sort of like creepy atmosphere to it because it's like a stormy night and you're wandering around this house alone and um all the lights are off and there's some of the lights are flickering yeah so it has this it sort of establishes like this horror kind of theme to it and you walk into the bathroom and you see like this red liquid everywhere and you think you're gonna like find your sister murdered in the bathtub but it turns out it's just like red hair dye yeah um and i think it's kind of cool the way that they've created this game that's so much like these other games that we've played but it delivers such a much more meaningful experience and sort of pokes fun at these other games along the way it's so true um right from the get-go because when you walk in the lights are flickering and you find like a note from an electrician that was doing like researching it they were they were at your house like looking into the problem and they say like everything's fine it's just old but you know it's nothing dangerous so like it's real world reasons for these things to happen but it sets it up so well to be a ghost story yeah and like they're even i mean this isn't really a spoiler but they're like kind of is a ghost story in there somewhere but it's never like becomes a thing yeah um and they just kind of keep playing with this sort of survival horror themes but never you know they keep it all grounded in reality yeah I mean, I think one of the funniest parts, I don't know if this is a spoiler, I guess it's a spoiler for a joke, but um, there's a point where you find, you find a note from your mom to your younger sister saying, um, she's talking about the lights and how your younger sister is starting to leave the lights on around the house. And she says, you're almost as bad as your, your older sister. And I just... I started giggling to myself because I'm like, I've left every single light on that I've turned on so far. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. A, like it knows, like it understands the way we play video games and it comments on them without it being this like obtrusive sort of, you know, like Bioshock ends up being this sort of commentary on video games and that engulfs the whole experience of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but this manages to kind of make these little asides without it being you know, without it sort of destroying the experience uh, of this more meaningful story. Yeah. Um, so you liked it? I did. Yeah, I when I played that, 
you know, I'm working on an eight-year-old Mac here, as I mentioned. So I, <laughs> I loaded it up, and I could get it to run with the absolute lowest settings of everything. But the problem is, is that when I turned it on, all I had was a pink screen. Oh, that's awesome. That's what I get sometimes when I try to play the original Diablo on my computer. <laughs> and so I've got this pink screen with the voiceover of you leaving the message at the beginning. Yeah. And so I knew it had this kind of like punk rock vibe to it with the music. And I'm like, well, maybe that's just the way this game starts. And <laughs> I sat there for a few minutes and that clearly wasn't the case. So what I had to do is I had to minimize the window and then pull it back up and it worked fine. Yep. But I played it with like a, it was like 20 frames per second and super blocky graphics, but I still did get to play it. Well, that's good. Um, but yeah, that's a great game. I really, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. It, it, I feel like that game would make a really good spoiler discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't played it in a while. I should probably revisit it, but uh, maybe we should do like an episode about that. For sure. And there's a bunch of stuff that I missed. Like I started looking at um, other things that you can find in the game, like other notes and stuff. And there were several things that I never came across. Yeah, there's pretty major like subplots in there that if you're not really paying attention to every clue you pick up, you will totally miss. Yep. Um, well, you got anything else you want to talk about? Um, no, I think that was it. Okay. Um, I have not been playing too much. Um, I've also been playing The Witcher 2, but we already talked about that. Um, I have been playing... Uh, the main thing that I've been playing is Bulletstorm. Hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've owned this game for a while. Um, I remember when it first got announced, I was like super interested in it because it's sort of this callback shooter to like the tone of shooters from the early 90s like Duke Nukem and Doom um, which are some of my favorite games of all time I don't know about Duke Nukem but Doom certainly is um, <clears throat> and it had this just totally different sensibility to it uh, our E3 episode we talked about Splatoon and Sunset Overdrive about how games that sort of eschew realism you know open themselves up to presenting like a really different experience other than the stuff that we're sort of used to and I feel like that's what Bulletstorm does. Uh, to set it up, you play as this former soldier turned space pirate who is seeking revenge on this former military commander of his that forced him to do all these like horrific things and kill civilians. Um, and you crash land on this planet where this, I don't know what his general is, and you're, the whole game you're trying to hunt him down. Um, but the mechanic is, is well, this uh, this planet's filled with like mutated psychopaths, and the mechanic of the game is, is that you're trying to kill them in the most creative and graphic ways that you can, and the more graphic or creative your kill, the more points you get, and you can use those points to upgrade your weapons and buy more ammunition and stuff like that. So they provided you with like two primary abilities: you can kick enemies, and you have this thing called the leash, where you can pull them towards you, or you can it's called a thump, where you hit it on the ground and guys fly up into the air. And when guys are airborne, they go into slow motion to allow you to like pull off a more in-depth skill shot. And every weapon in the game is designed around like a totally different mechanic. So there's a sniper rifle that when you shoot it, you actually take control of the bullet and you try to hit them in different places of their body. 
to get different skill shots. Or like there's a gun called the flail where you shoot. It's like two grenades with a chain in between them and they wrap around an enemy. And then you can like kick the enemy into a group of other enemies and blow it up to kill them all. And you get a bunch of points for that. But it just has like this totally hilarious sense of humor and it's it's super crass and like offensive but it knows that it is and it's sort of everything is tongue in cheek and sort of with a wink and a nudge um but i had a hell of a time with it you've played it right adam yeah i've played it twice okay yeah it was you know the thing that struck me the most about it was every time i came up to an enemy encounter i was like super psyched to try out all the new skill shots Mm-hmm. So and like, especially like as you're getting new guns and stuff and like upgrading them and stuff. Yeah. And every gun like in, you know, Call of Duty, every gun you get, there's like three classes of guns. You've got your like pistols, your sniper rifles and your machine guns. And yeah. they all feel interchangeable. One might be more powerful than another. But other than that, they feel pretty much the same thing. There's only eight guns, I think, in Bulletstorm. But each one is... You know, it's almost like a fighting game where each character plays completely differently. It was like every gun you had to sort of rethink your options as far as how you were going to approach this scenario. Yeah. Um, And you can pause the game and it tells you the different skill shots for the weapons that you've unlocked. So you can, you know, you know what you have to do to get the skill shot. And it's just about trying to pull that off. Um, and when you would like pull off a skill shot that killed like eight enemies and you just see all the points popping up on the screen, it was just like the most rewarding, like you just feel awesome. Like you feel like you really accomplished something. Um, and it's super, super gory and over the top, like guys are exploding in half and you're blowing heads off. Um, shooting them in the nuts. Yeah. There's one where you shoot them in the nuts and then kick their head off and it's called a mercy or something (laughs) like that. Um, so yeah, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. It's pretty intense, but, um, I had a really, really good time with it. Um, yeah, I feel if you're into shooters, I would, I would dare anyone to tell me that they do not like that game. Yeah. And it was criminally overlooked. I mean, it was, it was reviewed fairly positively, but, um, like nobody talks about that game. Yeah. Totally under the radar. People that like it, like it, but like, uh, otherwise you've never heard of it, I guess. Yeah. And it's a shame because that the company that made it or the developer that made it, People Can Fly, is owned by Epic and they made the fourth Gears of War, Gears of War Judgment. And it's a shame to see them restricted by an already established license, you know, where they were able to take Bulletstorm and just do something totally fresh and unique with it. Are they still around after Gears Four? I think so. I don't. I don't know for sure. I haven't looked into it, but I don't know why I thought they were gone. Or maybe they are. I don't think Judgment did terribly well. That would suck if to <laughs> to go out on Judgment. Yeah, I never played it, but I'm not a big Gears guy. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love first-person shooters. Like, it's one of my favorite genres, but. Recent years have not been kind to the first-person shooter. Yeah. Like, there's been almost no games of note. I mean, everyone's like, every game is a first-person shooter, but none of them are terribly interesting. It's Call of Duty. Like, it's everything. Call of Duty is just such a juggernaut at this point that you're either aping it or 
you're not making enough PS. Exactly. I mean, there's there's Halo, there's Call of Duty, and Battlefield. And Battlefield and Call of Duty are, you know, for all intents and purposes, the same game with just yeah. slightly different approaches. And then I like Halo, but I mean, Halo's Halo. There's, what, eight of them at this point? Right. And they all might as well be the same game. Well, I mean, look at what's <laughs> one of the best shooters in recent years, Wolfenstein. Yeah. Like, that game's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're returning to the roots of, like, first-person shooters being just totally over the top and not trying to be realistic. Yeah. Um, Need more of that. Yeah. I'd be much more up for uh, Call of Duty if I could do some skill shots. Yeah. Well, and Bulletstorm just has so much depth to it. Um, You know, like, the the narrative is fine. Like, it's coherent and it's entertaining. Um, But, like, the mechanics, there's just so much different stuff you can do in it and so many different ways. You know, they take the idea of shooting somebody in the face... And they just expand that to the furthest possible reaches that they could come up with. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it says a lot when, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like aside from just getting body shots, the headshots are the worth the least amount of points in the game. Yeah, yeah, And exactly. like that's what you're focusing on in every other FPS. Yeah, it's when I first played it, it was like I had a really hard time getting into it because you really have to set aside sort of your notion of what a modern first-person shooter is. Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, Bulletstorm is definitely worth looking into, especially if you're into first-person shooters. Mm -hmm. Um, Not for children, though. It's it's, uh, (laughs) pretty rough. Um, Well, there's really nothing else that I've been playing. Uh, Do you want to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into our main topic? Yeah, for sure. All right, cool. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, so, before we jump into our main topic, uh, there was one other game that we both played. Uh, we have spent a little time on the Destiny beta. So yes, the Destiny beta is live this week, and we played it on the PlayStation 4. Uh, for those that may not be aware, Destiny is a first-person shooter made by the people who made Halo, um, with a pretty big dose of MMORPG in it. Um it's funny that you say that because apparently I started looking into this today. Apparently Bungie is vehement to like not call it an MMO. Well, it's not technically an MMO. No, but they're like very set against like the, that comparison, I guess, which is weird to me. Like I understand, but. Well, maybe they shouldn't make a first-person shooter with heavy RPG elements that takes place with a bunch of other people online. Well, that's the thing is that... (laughs) (sighs) All right, I'm getting off topic now, but never mind. Whatever. (laughs) Apparently, their whole thing is that even though there's a bunch of people playing the game, the game, when you first log in, it does a behind-the-scenes matchmaking to put you in a group of like what is it, 16 other people? Yeah, and what it did not do was match us up, even though we were in a party together. 
Yeah. Well, that's I think that's on uh, Sony's end, not Bungie's. Yeah, personally. Um, so yes. Uh, so when you start the game, you're technically only in the world with 16 other players, um, which it didn't really feel that <clears throat> way because when we were playing it, we kept seeing a bunch of people running around. Do you think you saw that many people though? Maybe not, but the world's big enough that I was surprised that we ran into other players as often as we did. Well, that's true. Um, but anyway, back to the description. So the way the game works is is you start out in this sort of hub city where players can walk around and they can get quests, they can turn in quests, they can buy items. No, you don't. You, <laughs> you start out being led around by the Peter Dinklage bot. Oh, whatever. I mean, once you get past the introduction... <laughs> Um, yeah, Peter Dinklage. You're leaving out Peter Dinklage. He's a robot and gives a very underwhelming voice performance, as has been noted by many people. I, um, I saw this is, I just got to throw this in here real quick. You can cut this, but I saw this guy on my Twitter feed that was, uh, he thinks that Peter Dinklage is doing such a good job with Destiny that he wishes he would narrate his life. <laughs> Uh, I could not for the life of me tell if he was joking or not. It might be good for Chuckles to have him narrate your life. I guess. Uh, he seems pretty uninvested in his performance in Destiny. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I... there's there's three classes you can choose from. <laughs> there's kind of a rogue class called the Hunter, which is based on like precision damage deal dealing. There's a kind of mage class called the Warlock. Um, you played the Warlock, right? Yeah, Warlock is about... like huge area effects um spells and just big pools of damage yeah and then there's control there's the third class called the titan which i haven't tried yet but would imply that it's sort of the tank you know heavy armor kind of class yeah um but i mean it, it functions i'd say the closest comparison would be uh borderlands or defiance where you pick up quests and a lot of them are just you know go here and kill these guys and then come back. But the main story quests are a little bit more involved, but don't really change much from that formula um, where you're pretty much just going to a location and either collecting something or killing a certain enemy or something like that. Um, but the story and sort of the, you know, all that stuff seems to play sort of second fiddle to the mechanics, which was the thing that impressed me the most. Yeah. Um, it's technically open world, but it kind of feels more like a bunch of Halo levels strung together in a good way. Um, like there's, you know, corridors and sort of hallways you'll go to that open up into bigger open areas. But it all felt pretty seamless and believable. Did you think so? I did. Um, I, there might have been like one or two areas where you're, you're going through a corridor and all of a sudden you end up outside yeah, it's like, how did I get out here? <laughs> but I feel like that might be more me just not being familiar with the maps yet. Yeah. Than anything else. Um, I, I would agree with that. It definitely felt weird, but it's also the beta. So we're kind of just getting a sliver of the actual. Yeah. You know, core experience. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, we played pretty much through the entire beta as far as the missions go. Uh, cooperatively. Mm -hmm. We started from the beginning and played all the way through. Um, and I had a really good time with it. I was not terribly interested in it before this. I had played a little of the alpha, and 
you know, when I played the alpha, the thing I think that is going to be the biggest obstacle for Destiny is that until now, nobody really knew what to make of it. They're sort yeah. of marketing it, you know, it's like from the makers of Call of Duty and Halo, because it's published by Activision. So you're sort of expecting this Halo or Call of Duty-like experience. So when I first played it, and I was fighting these bosses that took like 45 minutes to take down, and you had to use very specific tactics against them, I was sort of taken aback by how much it felt like an RPG as opposed to the first-person shooter that I was expecting. Um, so I feel like they're going to run into sort of a marketing issue where people are not getting quite what they're expecting from it. I agree. Um, for me, when they, when it was first announced, I was, I was super excited for it because the initial art style and just the the previews that they showed of like all the different alien races and stuff i was like i'm in totally yes i'm down give it to me now it is gorgeous uh, the visuals are amazing yeah um but as gameplay started making more and more rounds before even the alpha was out just watching gameplay i got more and more unimpressed with it um and so when I when I played it, when I first booted up the beta, I was really surprised at how much I was digging it because it feels, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it feels totally different. This is one of the few games that feels totally different playing it than it does watching a video of someone else playing it. It is one of the most intense first-person shooters I've ever played. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, when you are in a room full of enemies, like, it is so fast-paced, and there is so much stuff going on, that it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah. Um, is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with, um, <clears throat> when you're watching a gameplay demo that's been, uh, like, pre-recorded yeah. as a teaser, p the people that they get to play those, they play in a very particular manner and they don't play well they don't mm -hmm. play bad but they don't there's just a certain way they go through the game and it's not how the like an actual person would go through the game well and it's a game that sort of reveals itself over time much like an mmo yeah like if you were only to watch a 15 minute gameplay video of an mmo you'd be like well what the fuck is this you know you're not you don't have the context for everything yeah. Um, and if you were to play just like a 15 minute sliver of an MMO, you wouldn't like, it's all about building your character and finding the right loot and finding the right weapons and getting a group of people to play with. So right. I feel like this is a game that does not preview well. No. Um, cause I've been reading previews that people were pretty underwhelmed with it. Um, but now that the beta's out and people have gotten to sync some real, like kind of, unstructured time in it i feel like that everybody's reacting pretty positively yeah <clears throat> um but yeah i mean the highlight of our time with it i'm sure you'll agree there's so there's three different types of missions there are story missions which are just the ones that sort of progress the main plot and they're pretty much what you would expect then there's missions where you're just free roaming, exploring the world, and you'll pick up little missions to like collect this many items or kill this many enemies in an area, and you get you know points or whatever. Uh, but then there's a third type, 
where it's most analogous to like a raid in an MMO, where it's you go through a very structured area and you're fighting bosses or like massive enemies. And that is specifically multiplayer. Like you can't play that alone. Or maybe you can, but the game automatically match makes you with uh for this one it was three people total. Um but that was awesome. I could not imagine trying to do that single player. No, this was the bosses I was talking about that take like forty five minutes to take down. Yeah. And I could see trying to do that by myself or like at a lower level, I'd be like, fuck this game. Yeah. But in a group where you're like calling out like I I died over here or there's like there's a group of enemies that spawned in behind me, mm-hmm. stuff like that. I Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, and the bosses have very specific like tactics and you have to take them down in a specific way. And when you're like we were fighting this big tank that shoots this missile that's pretty much a one hit kill. And if you're on the other side of the map and your buddy has gone down and you got to run over and save him, like trying to dodge that cannon and sprinting across the map, it's just awesome. Like it, like by the end of it, like I was like, I never get super pumped when I play video games, but I was like cheering. Like it was just awesome. Yeah. Um, and even like we were playing with a third guy, um, that didn't have a mic. And even that, like we were able to sort of seamlessly do teamwork like, he would run over to the other side of the map and shoot the guy and sort of distract him while we would shoot it from behind. And the game just sort of has this teamwork built into it without having to actually communicate with the other player. Yeah. Um, and sort of to build on that, there's uh, community events. Is that what they're called? Uh, I guess so. Yeah, they're uh- like on the map, like a major enemy will pop up. And everybody in the area is alerted to this, and they all just run in and fight that enemy at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of this thing that organically arises. And once again, you know, you could have up to 16 people fighting this enemy, and none of you would need to communicate with each other. And you yeah. all get loot and experience from killing it. So it's this very sort of communal experience. For um, sure. But yeah, I was I was really impressed with it, much more so than I expected to be. Yeah, I went from being on the fence to uh, I will be there day one. Mm-hmm. Not even a question. Um, one thing I want to talk about, because we've tried to play Borderlands together, and I find that narrative-based games, when I'm trying to play them co-op, like I just don't give a shit about the narrative. You know, like I just want to jump in and play the game. For sure. So, like, we weren't paying any attention to the cutscenes, and it seems weird, like, to pay attention because I'm sitting there with somebody else. Yeah. And maybe this is just kind of my own little hang up, but, um, I mean, the story was not very invasive to begin with, and it's more of like a setup. And I'm, I assume that you're going to sort of encounter lore as opposed to much active storytelling. Yeah. But, um,. Yeah, I was not taken in with the narrative very much. No. Not even what I played a little bit by myself and I I didn't really give a shit. I was no. like, whatever. It seems like pretty generic kind of sci fi fodder, but um I mean the game looks great and it plays well and I think that the mechanics really complement what they're going for with the different classes and everything. Yeah. Um and uh, the loot, I was pretty impressed with the loot for a company that's never made like a loot-based game before. Yeah. 
Um, I thought that, you know, weapons felt unique and different, and, like, when I'd get a more powerful weapon, it would feel like I had a, you know, a sizable increase in damage and everything. Totally. Um, but, yeah, I am looking forward to September 9th. Yeah, it can't get here fast enough at this point. <laughs> like, I... Even just right after we finished that raid, I was... I would have been prepared right then and there to jump back in, take oh, yeah. it on again. It was awesome. And especially like, you know, you beat it once and you've just sort of learned how it works. Like I, exactly. I want to jump back in and I want to do it now knowing how it works. Yeah. Um, but Super cool game. Yeah. Hopefully it'll live up to, uh, the, uh, bar it's set with the beta. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, move on to our main topic. Um, to introduce this topic, I'm going to tell a quick anecdote that sort of triggered me to think about this. So the other day I was at work, and I had gone into my back room uh, to I don't know, grab something to eat or use the bathroom, and I'd set my keys down. And when I was ready to go back out, I couldn't remember where I put my keys. And this happens to me every time I go back there. I set them down in some weird place, and I can never find them. So I spent like five minutes wandering around this relatively small back room and I couldn't figure out what the hell I did with my keys. And I'm looking in every corner, I'm moving stuff to see if maybe they fell behind something. And they're nowhere to be found. Finally I find them and I just like hung them on a rack somewhere or put them up somewhere weird. But it occurred to me while I was searching for them that looking for stuff sucks. It's not fun to walk around knowing that something's there and not being able to find it. So it was like this moment of clarity where I realized that collectibles are the worst thing in games. Like, it's not fun to wander around a fucking world looking for shit aimlessly. Yep. And... (laughs) So I thought we would have this topic and sort of discuss, you know, why are collectibles such a pervasive thing in games? Like, do they add anything or are they just a bullshit, meaningless task meant to frustrate us, much like my misplaced keys? Um, so what I've done is, is I've sort of identified what I see as the main categories of collectibles So I guess from there, we'll just sort of talk about them and how they function and what they do. Um, You know, what the point of them is, why they're included in the game. So I've identified like five main types of collectibles. Uh, The first kind is progression-based collectibles. And this is sort of like your classic. These aren't around so much anymore, but I think they still pop up from time to time. But this is like your Super Mario 64 kind of collectible, where you have to find X number of stars to unlock the next world. Um, or, you know, Banjo-Kazooie, you got to find this many jiggies to open up the next painting to, or whatever, open up the next level. Um, after that, there's narrative-based collectibles which is uh, stuff like your Bioshock or Thief, where you're running around finding audio logs or notes that flesh out the world or characters of the game. The third kind is achievement-based collectibles, where this is just your totally random 
pointless, like Gears of War, running around finding the fucking cog tags. Um, <laughs> but I fucking did it. I know. It's <laughs> We're going to come back to that, because that's, yep. that's the worst offender. <laughs> um, the fourth one, uh, and these two I, I came up with today. I was going to say, five was not... <laughs> the show notes said three. Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> what are you doing to me? These two are pretty pretty minimal, but I I thought they were worth including. Uh, the fourth one is like incidental collectibles, which this is like The Witcher, for instance, where you have to find certain crafting components to make an item, or find the right kind of plants to like make a potion. Yeah. Um, the fifth kind are score-based collectibles, and this is more like your classic arcade game, or like the original Super Mario Brothers, where you, you know, every coin you pick up gives you a, uh, you know, a score boost, or whatever. So, those are what I've identified as the main type of collectibles. I'm sure I've overlooked something, or maybe miscategorized something, but... As I see it, these are the five primary ones. Do you think that's a decent summation of that? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, so I guess let's start with the progression-based collectibles. Um, it, you know, we don't really see this anymore, but... Um, t- like, I'm playing Super Mario 3D World. Um, I've, I've pretty much finished it, but I mentioned it a couple of shows ago. Um, and every world has three stars you can collect in it. And that's, like, Super Mario 64, you just got a star for beating a level. You didn't have to find them in the world, so it wasn't so much of a collectible, so much as it was a reward for just completing the level. But in Super Mario 3D World, you can co- you can complete a level without finding any collectibles. Um, but the stars are hidden throughout the level, and you have to find X number of them to unlock the next area. Um, so what do you... What do you think about that kind of collectible, Adam? Do you think it is worthwhile or what? Well, I think it primarily will only work in games like that. Yeah. Like like platformer. So like the adventure style games? Yeah, I mean, the only other thing like it, it made me think of is it's not really related, but it's kind of like Super Meat Boy. Mm, finding like, like the Band-Aids? Yeah, and even, I know you haven't played it, but Battle Block Theater does a similar kind of thing as well. And I feel like that's where we see more of that type of collectible these days. Okay, well, let's let's go with Super Meat Boy for a minute, because that's interesting, because those, uh, for those who haven't played Super Meat Boy, it is a, like a sort of micro version of a platformer. Like levels... A get your ass raped by these spikes 10,000 times. We're going to kill you over and over and over and over, and you're going to hate yourself. But most levels, aside from Adam's apparent hatred for it... uh, (laughs) I can't beat the last level. It's really hard. Um, (laughs) Most levels are like a single screen, or maybe two screens. Like They're extremely small. Um and you just have to get to the exit as fast as you can, trying to beat a certain time. But there are hidden things called they're band-aids, and you can find them, and they unlock. Uh, do they unlock more worlds, or do they just unlock the dark world? The band-aids unlock the dark world. Okay, yeah. So, because getting man, this is ridiculous. Getting bandage girl is what unlocks the next like area. You don't. 
Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Whatever. Cut so that out. That to me is a less egregious form of collectible. You know, because it's like you know there's one in every level. Yeah. And the level is so small that you almost, if you're looking for it, you'll almost always spot it. It's just about how to navigate through the level to get to it. Exactly. So it's like built in mechanically as opposed to, you know, just randomly. Yeah. Um, and like you said, it's more about how do you get that collectible as opposed to... what. So it reinforces the main concept of the game, which is about just precision-based, hard-as-nails platforming. Yeah. So that works for me, because I don't spend my time looking for it so much as I spend my time trying to get it, just like I would spend my time trying to beat a level. Yeah. What do you think? I, it makes sense to me. I mean, I haven't played Super Mario 3D World, so I don't, I don't know how hard the stars are to find in that game. Here's the thing that really offends me about Super Mario 3D World, which is a great game. I don't want to come down hard on it because I really, really I did not that. want to come down on a hard on Super Meat Boy either. I love that game. I think you hate it. I just can't beat that last level. I refuse <laughs> to play it anymore. Maybe I can do it for you sometime. Maybe. <laughs> um, but Super Mario 3D World's a great game. But what they do is that... Uh, so Super Mario 3D World has a very strange camera angle because it is a 3D platformer in that you can you know walk forwards, backwards, left and right in the game. But it's built with four-player co-op in mind. So the camera hovers back almost like a um, 2D side-scroller. Like, I'd say it's closer to, like, the old 2D brawlers, like, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Final Fight, where you can walk up and down, but it's constantly at, a, like, a side angle. Okay. So I had thought of it up till this point more like almost an isometric viewpoint, but I guess that's not correct. No, not really. I mean, at times the camera will be behind you, but the camera is always controlled by the computer. Like, it's programmed in. In, you know, like Super Mario 64, you had free control over the camera, more or less. So anyway, so what they do is, is they hide the stars in areas that you can't see because the camera isn't in your control. Like, they'll hide them in, like, behind a wall or something, that the only reason that you can't see it is because you can't move the camera, so you have to jump in weird places just to see if a star happens to be there. I see. Well, I mean, that was kind of how uh, the new Super Mario Brothers games were, in that they would put star... In in that game, it was coins, but they Mm -hmm. would put the coins behind... um, invisible walls like you would see a wall but if you walk through it then you could see through the wall the exact same thing is in super mario 3d world it's so stupid it's like you got to try to go behind every single wall you find Mm -hmm. and the the piece of it that really gets me and this is going to kind of tie into the achievement based collectibles is that there's a finite number of them like, they, they tap into that OCD tendency where you want to find all three stars in every level. Yep. So, rather than just playing the game organically and exploring the world, you're jumping like an idiot against every wall and trying to destroy every block 
to see if there might be a star hidden in it. Yeah. So it takes away from the core gameplay of Super Mario 3D World, which is really the best part of it. And it has you doing these things that aren't mechanically interesting or, you know, just substantial in any way to try to find these stupid stars because the developers hid them there. And part of that's on me as the player for feeling compelled to collect them all. But, you know, they're there and they make a big deal out of you finding them all. Yeah. Um, so you'll end up replaying a level, you know, three, four, five, six times trying to find every last star and every last collectible. Um, so, I don't know, what do you think about that difference between, like, finite and infinite collectibles? Like, Super Mario Galaxy, I think Galaxy 2, you unlock new worlds by picking up the star bits, which there's an infinite number of. You just pick them up by using the Wii Remote as a pointer to, like, collect them along the way. Yeah, I mean, I feel that would be preferable just because then it's like if you need some, then you just go and get some. Exactly. And it's, you know, you just collect them all the way, so it's never a problem. As long as you've been just kind of picking them up here and there, it won't be an issue. And you don't feel compelled to collect all of them because there's an unlimited number of them. Yeah. But, uh... I don't know. I feel like that would be stretching it to call those collectibles then because that would be like saying, what do you think of money in GTA or like money in Borderlands? It's like whatever. I guess so. But I mean, it's still like it's it's something that you collect on the way and the only use for it is to unlock the next level. Yeah. Whereas like money in GTA is just a universal currency that you buy everything with. Sure. Um. But my point is, is that like in Super Mario Galaxy 2, there's only two things that could be considered collectibles. The stars and the star bits. And stars you just get for beating a level. So you don't have to go find the star. Just by beating a challenging series of platforming events, you get one. Yeah. Um, so I don't feel like that progression-based collectibles work in any real way unless they're purely tied to mechanics. Yeah. I feel like it's just an annoyance. Or, like, I think Crackdown would be an example of this. Sure. Where you collect the orbs and it progresses your character. Yeah. I um, mean, what if, like, what if Super Mario... I feel like the fix here would be like you said, tying it to gameplay, like what if uh, it had like three challenges per stage that if you completed, you know, for each of the challenges you complete, it's tied to a star that you would unlock. Well, that's what Super Mario 64 is, is every right. level has six different objectives. And by completing those objectives, you get a star. So do you think it's just like lazy game design? Like Absolutely. collectibles have become a thing, so they just keep doing that instead of going back to I think it's a, that way. I think it's a buzzword. Like they can boast like Super Mario Super Mario 3D World has like 360 stars. Like it's some yeah. stupid number. You know, like they can Halo boast Master Chief collection has 5000 gamer scores. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like it's just something that they can tout with their game and say like, you know, oh, I put, you know, 40 hours into Super Mario 3D World when there was only really 20 hours of quality experience there. Yeah. The rest of it was just trying to 
find every star and find there's also stamps you can collect that do absolutely nothing um so yeah i the progression based ones like i don't have a problem in super mario 64 that i need to beat six levels to unlock the next level you know or get six stars to unlock the next level because the stars are purely a reward for gameplay yeah um all right let's see what's next um, narrative-based ones. I know that you're a fan of Bioshock, and yes. I think that this ties into uh, Gone Home as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think of this style of narrative and the style of collectible? Uh, the problem... <laughs> the problem with this kind of collectible is that it is narrative in that like when you're playing bioshock you're running around corridors shooting enemies and like throwing plasmids and stuff but then you find an audio diary and so you pick it up and you want to listen to it but you like to actually listen to it and pay attention you've got to stop what you're doing Mm -hmm. and listen you i mean you can walk around if you want to but as soon as you get into a fight you're not paying attention to what's being talked about. <laughs> you're fighting the monsters. Yeah. Um, so that's just, it's horrible design because it's detracting from it. I guess it's potentially detracting from something that they put time and effort into. And yeah, I don't know. It's stupid and gone home because it strips away all the combat and all the, you know, the environment distractions that you have in Bioshock, uh, it works so much better. Yes. And, you know, Gone Home is a game purely about uncovering the narrative. You know, like, the, the you could argue that Bioshock is not purely about the narrative because there's the mechanics in it. Yeah. So, like, the <laughs> it makes sense for these things to be collectible because they fit in with the way that you're playing that game. You're exploring the house and you're trying to uncover, you know, what happened to your family. So to turn and and they don't like track. <laughs> I mean, in BioShock they track your narrative, you know, they you've got one of 60 audio logs. Um yeah. and gone home there's nothing gamey like that. You just you either find them or you don't. Um well, and they don't like they don't feel like collectibles because that's what the game is it's what it is it's what is based around like you said <laughs> exactly like bioshock identifies them as collectibles yeah like gone home we refer to them as collectibles because that's our paradigm yeah i mean bioshock if they wanted to have those like narrative the narrative collectibles as you have dubbed them <laughs> Um, it would make so much more sense if it was like in an RPG or just like a straight adventure game, mm-hmm. um, like something slower paced, like, like when we were talking about the Witcher, how you've got your journal, um, the Witcher is a game where you can, it, it, it can feel right to sit down and read a couple journal entries and take a break from the combat because that's not 
the center of the game. That's not everything that the game is about. Or Bioshock, that's pretty much what they're working with. Yeah, well, and the other piece of it for Bioshock is that, you know, Bioshock is also a game like Gone Home about wandering around an environment and drawing conclusions about it. And I think that the conclusions that you draw just from walking around the environment are so much more interesting and powerful than the ones that they tell you in the audio logs. Yeah. Um, like, and the, there's like so many different characters in that well, game. That's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like um, in Gone Home, there's four characters. Yeah. You know, so when you pick up a collectible, you know, like, okay, this is my sister. This is my dad. This is my mom. Right. Um, and as you get to know them, you get to know their personalities. Where in Bioshock, you pick up an audio log from Joe Shimo, <laughs> who you hear from once, and he's like, oh, the, the, the splicers are attacking, and now I'm dead. And yeah. That's it. You never hear from him again. It's like, um, okay, great. But, like, in, in, once again, like Super Mario 3D World, it prevents me from just walking around the environments and taking it in because I'm always looking at the fucking floor. I'm like, I don't want to miss an audio log because, number yeah. one, they're telling me that there's 60 of them. And, number two, I feel like that's where the narrative is. The other problem Bioshock has, and I guess this is this could be on topic. It might not be, but um, as you're looking around the environment, you're opening every crate mm-hmm. and like drawer to find items. Yeah where that kind of becomes a collectathon in and of itself. Yeah, and that's more like kind of the incidental items, like The Witcher, where you're just finding items to either craft a weapon or a health item. Yeah. But at the same time, it still detracts from the, you know, experiencing the environment, which is by far the most interesting part of Bioshock, is the art design and the world design. And you're not looking at that because you're constantly looking for a glimmer of something that you can interact with and open up and find a audio log or an apple. Uh, um, and then especially because the, the audio log in Bioshock is not as narratively significant as the ones in like Bioshock Infinite. Yeah. So the other piece of it being a collectible and an optional collectible is that in Bioshock Infinite, many of the uh, audio logs you pick up shed a lot of light on what is actually happening. So if you miss them, the narrative will not make that much sense. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me, I think Dead Space does this as well, because Dead Space is another game that's renowned for having an absurd amount of not only audio logs, but video logs mm-hmm. and text logs. And uh, if I recall correctly, I think it's in Dead Space 1. There's, uh, well, there's a bunch of them now that I think about it. There's moments where the gameplay stops and you've got to listen to somebody talking to you through your, like, video recorder. Yeah, it's basically, I mean, it's basically Bioshock in space with Resident Evil mechanics. Yeah, but in that, like, there are moments where it actually stops the gameplay to get something across to like tell you to go do something. Yes. And there it's almost more intrusive because like it's forcing you to stop. I guess what I'm getting at is like the fact that 
it throws all these video logs and audio logs at you that you can keep playing the game while they're while they're going on in the background. It's weird because those other ones, like the story-based ones, are in like they stop the gameplay to tell those to you. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're aware that you should not be playing the game while you're listening to these. Well, and here's but they do it anyway. Here's the thing: is like I see that the audio log, like the purpose of it was to subvert the cutscene. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the purpose of it is to do away with these sort of cinematic narrative devices and to make it more of, like, this organic experiential narrative. So, like, when you pick up an audio log or somebody, like, calls you over the intercom or whatever, you're still playing the game. You know, they don't take you out of it to watch a cutscene. Yeah. But to me, it has the reverse effect. You know, rather than me experiencing the game more organically, I'm experiencing it less organically because I'm constantly hunting for these collectibles. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I walk in somewhere in real life, I'm not expecting to, like, find shit everywhere that's going to give me hints about this place. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like, nobody records audio logs. So, like, it's it's this kind of... I, I don't know. I guess in the Bioshock universe, like, everybody... Nobody keeps a diary. It's it's audio diaries. So, like... I guess. But do that many people keep diaries? It doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> no. I don't know. It's just so stupid. It is. And, you know, to bring it back to the collectible thing and not to get too far sidetracked... You know, just to sort of sum it up, is it really distracts from the game itself. And I'm no longer taking it in in a real way because I'm trying to methodically, you know, like divide the room into a grid and walk up and down trying to search every single nook and cranny to find these collectibles. Sure, but Bioshock, like, it's such an offender of it because not only is it a collectible, but you feel like you kind of have to find them because they give background to the story. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and Gone Home really doesn't... Like, there's not that many notes you pick up. No, It's more like you'll trigger an event and you'll hear like a recording of your sister. And it's never really clear if you've like actually found a recording or if it's just kind of the game's way of communicating that the main character is processing these events. Yeah. And drawing a conclusion about it. And that makes it much more sort of organic and you're not, you know, you're just looking around in the environment, you draw conclusions for yourself as opposed to the game saying, all right, you explored and you found this area. Now we're going to tell you what it is. Yeah. Um, all right. What do we got next? Okay. So the, this is in my mind, the biggest offender is the achievement based collectible. And they kind of all fall under this. But this is, like I said before, the cog tags. or And I think this has really become a big deal in the current age because achievements on the Xbox or trophies on the PlayStation have become such a driving force in the way that not only we play games, but also the way that games are designed. Yeah. Um, and Assassin's Creed is probably the primary culprit in this one. Would you agree? Uh, yes. 
Never I mean, have. I've only like put serious time into Assassin's Creed 2. I think in that one it's like feathers or something. Okay. There's like a hundred of these things. And I found probably 20 of them throughout the game. And I'm like, fuck this. That sh- that trophy will go unearned. Well, Assassin's Creed 4, which is the only one I put significant time into, has probably five different types of collectibles. And they vary in function. Some of them are tied to like a getting a special suit of armor. Some of them like will unlock different other, you know, other different things. And then there's one that just does absolutely nothing. It's just there to collect. Um, but these to me are purely put in the game to pad the playtime and to give you something to do while you're roaming around the world. Like that's what I see as their function. Um, you know, like when you're sailing around on your ship in Assassin's Creed 4, you'll spot on your map, hey, there's a collectible on that island. They don't even, like, they don't even hide the collectibles. They pop up on your map. Which oh, that's stupid. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I guess that's better than you don't have to go looking for it. But it's like they know that it's annoying to look for them, so they show them on your map. Yeah. So it's like this sort of, you know, it's like doubly bad. Because they're admitting that they're fucking stupid. Oh, I mean, this happened in the Infamous franchise. Because Infamous 1, the first one, it, it had like 101 of those blast shards or whatever they were. Yeah. And they never show up on your map. But then in Infamous 2, they had the same thing, except they give you... You get some, I think it's some item that you get in the game that allows you to sense when a shard is Yeah, you like click in the left stick and it would like send a pulse out and they'd pop up on your mini-map. Yeah, and it's like they knew too that it was bullshit. And in these games, they have nothing, they connect in almost no way to what you're doing or, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. Like, I can, like, Bioshock, I can kind of respect what the developers are trying to do. Yeah. Because they're trying to introduce narrative in a different way, and they tried an experiment that I think failed, but... um, It's become a standard. It has become a standard, because everybody loves that game so much. Um, But, you know, like, I understand why they did that. Like, that serves a qualitative function to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In this, it's purely to prey on you know, the OCD quality of gamers um, mm-hmm. or of anybody who plays their game. It's it's just there to be like, oh, you've got 20 of them, but if you find 60, you're going to get 10 achievement points. Um, yep. And it just seems like a malicious way to design a game. Yeah. The example that I have for this one, and I'd like to hear what you think of this, um, is the the new Strider game. Okay, I've I've only played that very briefly, but okay. So, I was I was really confused when I first started playing Strider in that he, your health bar at the beginning of the game there it's it's shown by a green bar. And there's one green bar that's really long. But then there's a highlighted part of the bar that only goes for, uh, I don't know, like a, a couple, like only so far into the bigger bar. Okay. And I'm like, I didn't understand it until I started getting hit by enemies. And I'm like, the highlighted part is your health that you have. Okay. 
and I didn't get it. I'm like, what, what is the rest of that? Like, why don't I have more health? And it wasn't until I played the game for, I don't know, for half an hour or so, where I started finding health increases that are hidden uh, through areas where you need certain skills to get to them. Okay. I mean, the game plays very much like a Metroidvania. So okay. I guess that's part of it, but not only is like collecting all the health increases connected to a trophy, but I've since started playing that game on the hard difficulty. It's impossible without getting the health increases. Like I feel like I need to find every single one because the enemies do so much damage. And I couldn't help but think, like, why would you hide these? Because <laughs> between boss battles and, like, between area, like, s- specific areas, I feel like I've got to go back to my map, which is massive, and look for all the nooks and crannies that I haven't gone to. It just seems weird to me to connect something that seems so vital to the gameplay to like a trophy to like a, that kind of a collectible. I feel like that this sort of thing started. I mean, I don't know this, but this is just my, you know, assumption. I feel like that this started as a method of like, okay, we're going to make a big intricate world and we should reward the players who take the time to explore it all. Yeah. You know, but the problem is, is that they, Especially now that all this stuff is like... Like when you played like Super Metroid on the Super Nintendo. They never, I never played that. Okay. When I played Super Metroid on the Super Nintendo. Um, and they never tell you like... There's this many bomb upgrades in the game. And you found X number of them. It's yeah. just you would find them. So it never felt like... I never felt OCD about it because I didn't know how many there were. So if I found one, awesome. If I didn't, you know, whatever. Yeah. But now that, like, in Strider, they blatantly show you, like, hey, this is how much health you could have, but you're not playing this game thoroughly, so you only have this much. Even if they didn't, when you pick up a health upgrade, it it says one of ten collected. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I'm Um, like, oh, God, you've got to be kidding me. And so now instead of just playing the game organically and being, like, delighted when you find a new health upgrade you're combing the world for it. Yeah, I got to the end of my normal playthrough pissed off that I only found seven of them. And take to bring this back to like Dark Souls, in that game, I don't there's no collectibles to my knowledge. Um, but when you explore, you might find a new weapon or you mm-hmm. might find a new piece of armor or a set of armor. Um, and that to me feels like a much better way of rewarding a player for being thorough. Because that will then change the way that I play that game. Because, like, hey, maybe I found this weapon that's either totally different from mine or so much more powerful than mine. Um, so it makes, you know, like, it affects the game in a real way. Yeah. Whereas, like, you find the health upgrade and, like, you know, whatever, I've got a little bit more health. Now maybe I can play the game on hard, but... It, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I guess what pisses me off about strider is that like not only are there the health upgrades but they're tied to a trophy but there's uh there's 
the traditional kind of collectibles, you pick up these, they look like orange boxes. Okay. And the first time I saw one, I was like, oh, 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 what is that? (laughs) And I grab it and it's like, you've unlocked new concept art. There are, (laughs) there's dozens of these things. I, I, maybe it's just because I'm not like an art guy. But when it tells me that I've unlocked new concept art, I don't give a fuck. Nah, I don't, I don't care either. Whatever. It's not like I can print it out and hang it on my wall. Yeah. Maybe if I collected all of them and I could send a picture in showing that I collected all of them and they sent me like a... a, <laughs> a An art book? Poster-sized copy of each and every one of them. Um, I'll hang them all. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I feel like that this was all meant to encourage exploration, but it is sort of warped into this thing where, you know, it's like you said, it's so tied to being able to play that game on the higher difficulties that it's no longer like a nice reward. It's a necessary sort of undertaking to try to find all of these things. Yeah. Um. All right, so uh, this one is more of like a subcategory, I guess, but the incidental ones. This is probably my favorite type of collectible. Because, like, in The Witcher, if I need to find plants to make, you know, a potion, there's not a limited amount of them. I just run out into the forest, or along my way, I pick up the plants, kind of like the star bits in Super Mario Galaxy. Yeah. Like, I just pick them up as I go, and it's not like I have to go seek them out, or they're in a preset location. They just, if I'm paying attention while I'm running around, I'll find them. It's sort of like picking up ammunition in a first-person shooter. Yeah, and The Witcher does it really well because the plants, if you're looking to make a certain potion, it doesn't ask for a specific plant. Like, each plant is divided into one of, like, eight categories. Mm -hmm. And so it'll just say, you need one of this plant category type. Yes. Not like you need to specifically find this like super rare gold leaf petunia or yeah. something. I don't fucking know. <laughs> and like if you're up shit creek and you need to like craft a specific armor set and you don't have something, 99% of the time, unless it's a really special armor set, you can just buy that item from a vendor. Yeah. So it removes this, you know, sort of false pressure of trying to find specific items, and it generalizes it. So I think the reason I included this on the list was that there is a way to include collectibles in a game that doesn't feel intrusive. It feels more organic because they're items that fit within the world. You know, like in Strider, and you pick up the concept art blocks or whatever you would call them. Like, those yeah. aren't those don't fit in the universe anywhere. No. It's just the concept art icon. They're just in, like, a hard-to-reach area. Like, good job, <laughs> you you went to the top of this building. Yeah. Um, so, I, I feel like that this is the best way to handle them. Um, and, like, take, uh, like, back to Crackdown. I love Crackdown. I really like that game. But yeah. it feels sort of cheap to me, or cheesy, that there's 300 orbs, you know, or whatever. I don't know how many there are, but I think it's 300. There's, yeah, yeah, I think 300. That sounds right. And when you pick up the orb, it it 
acts as an upgrade for your character. So if you pick up a green orb, it makes you jump higher. A purple orb makes you, you know, punch harder or whatever. Um, it the I think the agility orbs are the only ones that are limited in the game. But rather than make them limited, just have them pop up when you do like a specific kind of jump or something. Yeah. You know, and so that you just pick them up organically by playing the game. Um, and, you know, I guess you could say that people could like spam that and grind that, but people could just look up a guide and figure out where the, all the orbs are anyway. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it kind of reminds me of... Um... I used to play a lot of Call of Duty Modern Warfare, Modern Warfare 2 mm -hmm. uh, specifically. And like, I, I'm sure they still do it now. I haven't played a Call of Duty in a while, but um, like the multiplayer, you can, you would unlock new like weapon types by getting kills with certain weapons. Like it, it would say like, you've got a challenge for, getting like 100 headshots with this sniper or 150 regular kills mm -hmm. with this sniper. And um, I don't know. It just seems like that's the more natural way to do it because it's like a natural feeling growth like it's something you're doing anyway. Well, or like a like Oblivion or Skyrim, which are not, you know, yeah, paragons of game design necessarily. But, um, you know, when you kill things with your sword, you get better with your sword. Yep. So, like, just the more you jump around, the better you get at jumping in Crackdown or something like that, as opposed to making it this specific thing. Um, you know, and... I want to see a game where finding collectibles makes it easier to find other collectibles. <laughs> it increases your collectible hunting skill. <laughs> just this, like, metagame nightmare. Yeah, endless collectibles. I'm gonna make this game. Um, it's like DLC Quest. I haven't played that, but like collectible Quest or something. That game is so funny. I've heard it's you can really finish good. it in like a minute and a half. <laughs> um, well, what I was gonna say when you're talking about Call of Duty is Borderlands. I'm sorry, not Borderlands. Bulletstorm, which we were talking about earlier. Yeah. You know, there are bullshit collectibles in that game, but what I want to talk about is the skill shots kind of function like collectibles. In that, like, it tells you what you need to do, and then you do it, and you get a check mark next to that skill shot. But, once again, it's something that feeds back into the core gameplay. Like, the reason I'm playing that game is to kill guys in super gruesome, awesome ways, and it gives me a list of the best ways to do that, and then checks them off. So it appeals to the OCD part, where you like to see check marks next to an ordered list of things. Like, I understand that that's, like, there's a certain pleasure in that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it does so in a way that feeds back into the gameplay in a meaningful way. Right. Um, all right. So this one kind of fits in with the incidental is, like, the score-based collectibles. It feeds back into it in that... It's another, like, limitless one. Where in Super Mario Brothers, the original one, there's not a finite number of coins in a level. Like, you can find as many as you can find. They don't tell you there's a hundred coins in this level and you have to collect them all. Um, so you're purely collecting them as you're running around to try to add, uh, you know, points to your score. 
Um, and to me, much like the incidental ones, this is a much better way of doing it because it gives you that extra little push to do something along the way, but it doesn't detract from it. It doesn't distract you from the core mechanics of it. Yeah. Um, that's it for the categories that I've got. I mean, there wasn't, I don't think there's too much to add to the score one. Um, no, I mean, I, if I was going to say anything, it would just be that, like, you don't see many games like that around these days because because of what has become traditional collectibles. Yeah, and I really think that achievements are a major, major problem with the way the games are being designed now. For sure. Because it's so easy to build an achievement around the idea of collecting a certain amount of things. Yeah. Um, and it's an easy way to pad out game time. And when it's a selling point that your game is over, you know, a hundred hours long or whatever, um, it's easy to throw these things in there just to make that seem more appealing. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's all about just like, first of all, don't call them collectibles. Yeah, for real. <laughs> and don't like, don't advertise that there's this many of something in your game. I think that that's the, the biggest problem for me is when I see that there's, there's a hundred of them, it really makes me want to find them all. Yep. But I hate doing it. Like, I don't have fun when I do it. And like, I, people could say like, oh, it's optional. Well, you don't have to do it. But the game encourages you every step of the way to do it. Yeah. So I feel like it's kind of on the developer at that point. I do too. Um, so do you have any final thoughts about it? No. Just please stop. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any examples of games that handle it well? Maybe going back to... Uh, what I think was our very first episode, we talked about Lost Planet 3. Yeah. I know it had traditional collectibles, but it did have side quests that were like, uh, I don't know, this might be a bad example, but it's like, go kill 10 of this monster to bring back its data, mm -hmm. and I'll give you like increased attack against it. It's yeah. Like, That's fine, like whatever, because I'm going to be killing those things anyway. Well, and that kind of fit into the world of that game. Yeah. Because you're on, like, the science outpost in the, you know, on this ice planet. Right. So, like, it makes sense that they would want more information on these monsters out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't, like, there's not a limit on those monsters. So, like, you can just kill them as you go along, and you're not having to, like... Like, you know, in Bioshock, you're looking in, like, fucking toilets to try to find collectibles. Right. You know, you're not looking in, like, you're not thinking, like, okay, where would I hide this item? You're just looking, like, you're thinking, okay, if I was designing this level, where is the least likely place for the player to go? And that's where the collectible's going to be. Right. Um, I did actually think of one other example, if I recall correctly. Yeah, go um, for it. Clive Barker's Jericho. I'm. <laughs> this is a game I would love to talk about on another show. I love Clive Barker's Jericho. The sliver of that game I've played is awesome. It's so good. I 
uh, I've been intending to replay it for a while now, but I've just got too many other games to get through. Um, but the way I I don't recall there being traditional collectibles laying around the levels of the of that game. Okay. Um, but what happens is you unlock things after completing a level. So like, uh, depending on, I think it's based on who's been introduced in the story so far. Like if you complete level one, you'll unlock the backstory, uh, like the, the profile of the main character. Okay. And when you finish level two, you'll unlock the backstory of the sniper girl character or whoever. And you'll get, you'll unlock more if you play through the game on the higher difficulties. Um, but I feel like that's a good way to do it. Like, here's just something extra for doing what you do anyway. And you can get some extra backstory on the game if you want it. Yeah, that's kind of like the Power Stars in Mario 64. So, like, you're just, you're playing the game and you get rewarded for just playing the game. That makes sense. Uh, another confession, I've played like five minutes of Super Mario 64. Yeah, we may need to sit you down one time and uh, you're going to get all 120 yeah. stars. So I could not have made that connection. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that was that feature was founded in Jericho. <laughs> Super Mario 64, no, it didn't exist. <laughs> Never happened. I think that, you know, to really sum this up for me, is that collectibles force me to play the game in a way that does not fit the narrative of the game or doesn't fit the world of the game. Yeah. They force me to play it in the way that I would, you know, like solve a math problem or something, you know, well, like for this, sure. this very methodical or like, I, I don't know if you've ever played like, or played or worked a Sudo Sudoku puzzle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's like that like you just it's trial and error you walk around and you you know try to think like okay it's like this you it's just such a mathematical approach to it especially in a narrative kind of organic based game like a bioshock or a super mario 3d world um where it's all about just sort of experiencing the game they have you running around doing all kinds of stupid shit trying to find these collectibles yep yeah, so collectibles suck. Sincerely, us. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, Ubisoft. Um, <laughs> Are they the biggest offender? Oh, absolutely. Probably, yeah. I mean, I, what else do they have? I guess, I don't know. Have you seen those articles that were like Ubisoft the game? No. Where it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> it's like how every Ubisoft game is exactly the same format. Oh, that's funny. And they turn everything into a collectible. Like Far Cry 3, you climb to the top of the tower. And oh there's my god, it's so towers. true. And, you know, I mean, like Far Cry 2 is probably the best as far as that goes. Because there are collectibles. You have to find the diamonds. But they're pretty easy to find. And you just use them to buy stuff. So they're kind of a currency. Well, it's that's an entertaining way to find them, too. Like, you're driving around, and you've got the little radar that pings. Exactly, yeah. It's, it, it turns it into more of a mechanic. And, like, it also fits the world, because you're in, the, you know, like, war-torn Africa and, like, the whole Blood Diamond thing. So, like, it kind of makes more sense. 
I'm sort yeah. of giving it a pass because I love that game so much. Sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's only one collectible, and that's it. Um, yeah. Not, you know, Far Cry 3, which turns everything into a collectible. No, I mean, even Wolfenstein, The New Order, which we both really enjoyed. Oh, I forgot. It has a ton of collectibles. And it's yeah. like... And they're bullshit. It's like, why is there a fucking golden chalice on this bridge? <laughs> <laughs> like, I get that it's it's a callback to Wolfenstein 3D where you would... Uh, there were collectibles in that game, but they were purely score-based. Like, you would just pick up the golden chalice off the ground and you'd get 100 points or whatever. Yeah. But it's still stupid and it didn't fit that game at all. Nope. Um, <laughs> well... I don't really have anything else to add to this, do you? I don't think so. All right. Well, I think uh, we'll call it here then. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, and as always, you can find us on uh, SoundCloud. Just search Arbitrary Analysis. We're also on iTunes. Uh, or if you head to Facebook.com slash Like Arbitrary Analysis, uh, we post our new episodes there, and uh, you can join in the discussion. All right. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening.